Revelation chapter 2, verses 18 through 29 this morning. Talking about the church at Thyatira. Verse number 18. To the angel of the church in Thyatira write, The words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality, to eat food, sacrifice to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation, unless they repent of her works. I will strike her children dead. All the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. But to the rest of you in Thyatira who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast to what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end to him, I will give authority over the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. When earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority for my father. And I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So here we are at the church of Thyatira. Church of Thyatira, also in Asia Minor like the other churches, not nearly as significant historically as some of the other churches we talked about, kind of in close proximity to Pergamum. Uh, Pergamum and Thyatira had their fortunes linked together um, by military covenants between the two cities. So basically, as you go through history, as Pergamum goes, so goes Thyatira. If Pergamum's at a high point, Thyatira's at a high point. Pergamum is at a low point, Thyatira is at a low point as well. It's significant in the biblical account because it is the home of Lydia, the seller of purple, who Paul runs into in Philippi. And so Lydia is the, the most notable convert from the city. In fact, I, I believe the only one that we know of. Uh, it seems likely she met up with, with Paul. She was selling this purple dye that was, that was one of the major exports of the city and uh, much cheaper than the more wealthy sorts of purple dye. This is kind of like those knockoff coach pur purses. All right, this is, this is the knockoff purple dye that th comes from Thyatira. And, and Lydia is someone who sells this dye. And it seems likely that she, after hearing uh, from Paul, after believing the gospel, returns to Thyatira. And a church over time through whoever, whichever apostles, whichever uh, evangelists may have come into the city, that city begins to grow uh, in the faith to the point that there's a church there. Uh, significantly for the culture of that city would be their large guilds. Uh, the culture in the city centered around these guilds, these, these groups of people where they would share the same occupation and they'd unite together. They'd have these partnerships and doing whatever it is that they did, uh, like the sellers of purple. And they would kind of work together. They'd have certain rules that they had to follow in order to, to make the marketplace competitive, things like that. So these guilds were very popular. You could not sell your merchandise if you were not a part of the guild. We don't have that as much today as we used to, kind of like unions, but, but somewhat different. Back in the, the mid-20th century, Switzerland had a very powerful cheese guild, 
uh, that would basically restrict the production of different types of cheese. So for much of the 20th century, Switzerland only produced like six different kinds of cheese. And then the cheese guild fell apart. And now everyone gets to make whatever cheese they want. So Swiss cheese has gone down. Like uh, the, the finer Swiss cheeses are like a tenth the price as they were 20 or 30 years ago because these guilds control everything. So if you're a dairy farmer, you are reliant on that Swiss cheese guild. If you're a cheese maker, you're reliant on that Swiss cheese guild. Well, in Thyatira, the same thing was true. And these guilds were more than just business arrangements. They were cultural arrangements. They, they were really part of who you were as a citizen of Thyatira would really come down to how involved you were in the guilds. The guilds, when they would meet together, would often have idolatrous feasts. So this is where we get into a somewhat of a distinction between Pergamum and Thyatira. In Pergamum, you had the powerful Roman Empire headquartered in that area in the city of Pergamum. In Thyatira, the Roman Empire is not the dominant cultural force, although certainly relevant to the culture of Thyatira, it, but it is not as dominant as it would be in Pergamum. Instead, it's these guilds. And when a guild would have a meeting, they'd come together and they'd eat uh, meat sacrificed to idols and things like that. So, where in Pergamum the pressure was a government pressure, in Thyatira the pressure is much more of a, uh, a um, financial pressure on the church. If you want to be successful in business, you better be going to these idol feasts, is the sort of idea of what's going on in Thyatira. One of the largest guilds in the city, associated with the military city of Pergamum, Thyatira would have a large group of armorers. So the Armorers Guild was perhaps the most important guild in the city and would su supply the Roman Empire with armor. This comes up early on in this letter because when it describes the Son of Man here, uh, here in verse 18, it actually talking about the Son of Man as we see in verse, chapter 1, instead of using the title Son of Man here, it refers to the title Son of God. Christ's deity is not hidden in any of these letters, but it's put explicitly on display here in the letter to Thyatira. So the Son of God is the Son of Man. The Son of Man is the Son of God. He has eyes like a flame of fire. His eyes like a flame of fire. Now think again, the culture, the dominant occupation in that culture would be the armorers. So the eyes like a flame of fire. This idea of purifying, powerful fire would be common in people's minds. You'd go to church on Sunday, and then Monday morning you'd go to the office, and the office has 1,000-degree fires. Right? So you're going to think about fire in a different way, just like a farmer thinks differently when you use a farming metaphor than a school teacher does. All right? So as he writes, there's these, these armorers, and the, he uses the, this phrase, eyes like a flame of fire. There's this purifying, refining work that fire does throughout the Bible. Also, a, a matter of judgment. Later on in this letter, it's going to refer to Jesus as one who searches mind and heart, an idea of insight. He knows things. He's insightful. So the eyes of flaming fire uh, communicate both of those ideas, purity and insight. But then again, reflecting the iron uh, worker, the armorers in the city, the final description of Jesus is that he has feet like burnished bronze. Okay, so these bronze feet, shiny, reflective, powerful looking. An emphasis on his feet may bring our minds to Revelation chapter 19, 
where it says that from his mouth comes a sharp sword, that was mentioned in the last letter, with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, that's mentioned in this letter. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. So you have this idea of feet of burnished bronze, of, of Jesus standing there, eyes of flaming fire. It's already been described of having a sword coming out of his mouth. And here in this letter, his feet of shining bronze or armor. And then what do his feet do at the end of the book? They tread out the winepress of God's wrath. So the picture of Jesus in writing to Thyatira is one of wisdom and judgment, but also a purification of power of authority. Jesus is a mighty and wrathful God looking upon his church. And when he looks upon the church at Thyatira, what does he see? Starts with commendation, verse 19. I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. So even here, this is a fairly harsh letter. It's going to be pretty critical. But he starts with a commendation. I know your works. Well, what works are they? Love, faith, service, patient endurance. Your latter works exceed the first. How easy is it when we have something negative against someone else to define the whole person in that negative feeling we have towards them. Uh, I think we do this in, in uh, politics. We've got someone we disagree with, we just lump the whole person into that one opinion rather than understanding that people are complex sets of characteristics. I think we do that uh, sometimes, hopefully not permanently, but I think sometimes we see this in marriage. When you're arguing, you're, you're, you're having a disagreement with your spouse and suddenly you get this feeling that there is nothing good about them because in this moment you're upset about this one really minor thing. And hopefully that's just a flash followed shortly by repentance and recognizing how wrong you are. But it is that natural tendency, right? No, I feel it with, with many relationships. When they're difficult, it's easy to only think that they're always difficult. There is nothing good. My children are never well-behaved. They never do what's right. Why? Because I'm angry right now. It's immature and it's foolish. Jesus doesn't do that. Jesus is upset with the church at Thyatira. However, even in his anger, and it is a strong anger, even in his anger, he begins his letter to them by saying, I know your good works. So what are their good works? Love. Well, this is a contrast with Ephesus, which we've already talked about, a church that's doing good works but has left its first love. It says they love and in fact, the conclusion of his list of good works is that their latter works exceed their first. So they are growing in love. This is a church that's doing the opposite of what the church at Ephesus is doing in the area of love. Interestingly, what's the weak point in the church at Thyatira? We'll get to it, but they're tolerating that woman Jezebel. What's the strong point in Ephesus? They're they hate the works of the Nicolaitans. So we have these two churches who are kind of on opposite sides, right? We've got the church at Thyatira who's good at love and bad at hating false teachers. And you've got the church at Ephesus who's good at hating false teachers and bad at love. And so I think it's, a, it's good for us to be reminded we don't want to be like either one of these churches. We want to be like both of them and we want to not be like both of them. It's complex. It's difficult to, to, to walk through these things. So their first characteristic is love. We talked in talking about Ephesus, that love in the New Testament can't be decided this is love for God versus love for others because those two are integrally tied together. You cannot separate love for God and love for others. We see also faith. 
faith. There's trust, perseverance. This is a church of faithfulness. They continue on. They endure their service. They minister to one another for God. So in this church body, there's this growing love. There's this service for one another. They're caring for one another. There's lots of really good things happening here. Patient endurance. When they're persecuted, they're steadfast. They endure. They're faithful again. And finally, their latter works exceed the first. Not only are they doing these good works, they're increasing in good works. So here we have a church where if you describe the church here in just this verse, we're like, all right, sign me up. This is a church I want to be a part of. However, that's not it. There's also some negatives. There are both weaknesses and strengths in the church. How are they weak? What's the condemnation that Jesus gives? They tolerate that woman Jezebel. They tolerate that woman Jezebel. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. So, in the church at Thyatira, apparently there is a woman. Uh, likely her real name is not Jezebel. It's likely just there to refer to her and to draw our minds back to the Old Testament Jezebel. Um, it's not a name that you would normally name your child if you have a Christian background, most likely. Uh, so it's, it's probably a term that's put on her because of her behavior. She's a reflection of Ahab's wife, Jezebel. Well, what does Ahab's wife, Jezebel, do that she does? Ahab's wife, Jezebel, is not an Israelite. She's married to Ahab, the worst king of the northern kingdom. And what she does is when she marries him, she brings in all her gods. She brings in all these false prophets. She brings in all these people who are going to give a false worship in the nation of Israel, a worship that ultimately ends in the destruction of Israel and, in fact, the destruction of both Ahab and Jezebel in rather brutal fashion. Jezebel persecutes the true prophets. Uh, Elijah on, the, on Mount Carmel is, is basically fighting through proxy through her, her prophets. Abraham is fighting back and forth with her and ultimately calls down fire from God, um, angering Jezebel. The funny thing is, Jezebel wants to kill Elijah at that point, so he runs away and complains about wanting to die, which... If you hadn't run away, Elijah, Jezebel was happy to answer your request. Uh, but that's Jezebel. She's, she's not a good figure in the Old Testament, certainly. She murders Naboth, who owns the vineyard that her husband wants. And she enables and, in fact, even somewhat creates Israel's worst king. But what about Jezebel in the New Testament? What about Jezebel in Thyatira? What does she do? She calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. So she's teaching and she's seducing towards idolatry and sexual immorality. So notice what's she doing. She's teaching. Okay? She's teaching towards idolatry and immorality. What Jezebel is doing is not just like tricking people into this necessarily. It's not just, it's, it's not that she just wants to do this and other people are following along. This is someone who is taking 
her false doctrine, her immorality, her worship of idols, and she's saying, let me teach you why this is a good thing. Jezebel is a teacher in the church. She's someone who claims to be a prophetess, someone who claims to be speaking on behalf of God, and she is actually teaching the church immorality and idolatry. But not only is she teaching immorality and idolatry, she's also seducing the church with immorality and idolatry. You see, Jezebel's message to the church was not one that sounded bad and off-putting. Jezebel's message to the church, the way it's described, she is teaching and seducing. She is coming to them from a point of authority and saying, this is what God has said. Do this. And seducing them, making it look attractive. So this Jezebel character is in the church making evil look good. I think we need to be very cautious. A lot of the most destructive ideas in the history of the church come into the church because they look like godliness. They come into the church under this idea of being something good. This week I watched a video of Pope Francis talking to a young boy by the name of Emmanuel. I don't know if anyone has, has seen this video. It's supposedly one of the things that just shows how wonderful Pope Francis is. And as he's talking to this boy, this boy... It's, it's a very sad video. He gets up, it's a question and answer time, and he says to Pope Francis, uh, at least the subtitles say that, I don't speak Italian, uh, he says to Pope Francis, my father was an atheist, and he just died. And the boy's probably five, maybe six years old. Is he in hell, or is he in heaven? And of course, the, the Catholic Church dogma is there is no salvation outside the church. Um, but the Pope is not going to answer the six-year-old like that, which is somewhat reasonable. Uh, but he comes to this boy, and he whispers. And they whisper back and forth for probably 45 seconds. And uh, no one can hear what he's saying. And then he gives the boy a hug, and the boy's crying, and the Pope's crying. Everyone's crying, super emotional. The boy goes back and, and sits down. And he gets up, and he says, I asked Emmanuel if I could share with you what I told to him. He said, Emmanuel is baptized. His father was willing to baptize him. It is easy to baptize someone when you believe in baptism. It is hard to have your son baptized when you do not believe in baptism. And so therefore, I think that God will look upon the righteousness of his father and doing the hard choice of having a child baptized when he doesn't believe in baptism. And that there is hope that God will save his father because he had Emmanuel baptized. And this is a mark of just how, to many people, of how gracious the Pope was when he's contradicting his own doctrine to say nothing of biblical doctrine. But it sounds really good, right? I think this little six-year-old boy, you want to comfort him. And I think that you could answer in a way that's not, nah, he's in hell right now. I think you can answer graciously. You can answer gently. But you can answer honestly, and yet the world sees this answer says, oh, that's so wonderful, that's so much. And I think it's funny because non-believers, they see it, like, wow, that's so much better than what the Catholic Church actually teaches. Uh, and, and I'm just like, this, this, this doctrine, this idea, it's coming from a place where he wants to say something wonderful and kind and gracious and gentle. That's what works righteousness in general is. 
saying we want to do good works, right? Good works are good. The Bible's clear. Without, faith without works is dead. The Bible's clear. Good works are good. And so we want to encourage people to do good works. So why would we say that good works aren't a part of salvation? And so the doctrine of, of works-based salvation comes into the church because it sounds good. It sounds good to say you can be righteousness enough to undo the stuff you did wrong in the past. It sounds good to say that there's hope for everyone, even if they didn't believe in Christ. It sounds attractive to a human who wants to reject God to say that you can reject God and be okay. And so it creeps into the church. It creeps in to those who claim to preach the Bible. It's easy for us, though, here to look at other people and say, here's the way that all the other churches have allowed this to happen. Shame on them. I'm sure glad that I'm better than the church at Thyatira and the Catholic Church and, and the Jehovah's Witnesses and everyone else. I'm better than everyone. But anytime we're reading the Bible and our primary application is to all the other people, that we're probably doing something wrong. How do we do this? How are we guilty of spiritualizing ungodliness? of making immorality dress up in church clothes. How often do we do this? How often do we take unkindness and a lack of love and call it saying it like it is? I'm just a blunt person. Hey, there's a time for truthfulness. Well, there's a, every time is a time for truthfulness. But the, there, there is a time for bluntness. But are we allowing ungodliness to be recategorized as, I'm just a blunt person. We can dress up our sin and make it look godly. How often do we take laziness and call it rest? We're supposed to rest. We're supposed to, we're supposed to, uh, Israel had to take a Sabbath. So we're supposed to rest. And I don't disagree with that. However, I've, I'm familiar enough with my own sinful heart that I know that I have a propensity to take good things and try and pretend that bad things are good things. I have a propensity to self-justify uh, Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. I want to be God-like. I want to be like God. God is so good, so why shouldn't I go and be like him? We dress up ungodliness and call it godly. Often do we call gossip asking for prayer requests? How often do we take our sinfulness and then come up with some way to make it sound godly? We evangelize without principles. We compromise the gospel for the sake of the gospel. We say, well, I'm going I'm to give up ground on the gospel because it makes me a more effective gospel witness to my culture. Well, that doesn't work. You cannot give up the gospel to share the gospel. And it might sound holy and godly, yet we are sinning. Recognize that your heart is deceitful. Your heart is desperately wicked. Open up God's word and allow it to shine on your heart, constantly questioning, am I doing this because I love God or am I saying I love God because I want to do this? Am I allowing my wickedness to be dressed in its Sunday best and calling it righteousness? And that's what Jezebel does and the church tolerates it. 
She teaches this false gospel. She teaches them idolatry. You can imagine, we talked about the guilds. You can imagine if your living is dependent on eating at these guilds, guild feasts, Jezebel saying, guys, an idol's nothing, just like uh, uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 8. An idol's nothing. A stick's a stick, a stone's a stone. Just go to the guild feast, secure your living. It's okay. Participate in that. That seems to be the sort of thing that Jezebel would have been doing, encouraging people to participate in idolatry, maybe even make the point, well, you have a better view, you have a better theology. That's why you're doing it. Your, your compromise with the world is an example of your good, strong theology. Our hearts are deceitful. We must always be on guard for sin, dressing up as righteousness. Not only are her actions described as teaching and seducing to immorality and food sacrifice to idols, there's another reference later on in the letter in verse 24. But to the rest of you in Thyatira who do not hold this teaching, okay, so this is talking to people who don't hold this teaching, but it's going to describe the teaching in here. Those of you who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, uh, that's a good example of bad teaching if it's called the deep things of Satan. Um, this is actually a hard phrase to interpret what exactly it means. It can go two different ways, two, two reasonable ways that it can go. Um, one possibility is it's sarcasm, right? Sarcasm, where uh, Jesus is basically saying you're talking about these deep righteous things that these things that you think are this depth that you have of righteousness and Jezebel, she's probably a very winsome teacher. She was probably, I mean, it's talking about her seducing people to this false teaching. She's probably a very attractive speaker, someone who got followers. And they're thinking they're doing these good, godly, righteous things. And Jesus says, these are actually the deep things of Satan. What you think is depth is actually satanic. That's, that's possible. I think that's, that, that would be my preferred understanding. The alternative option is that this is um, a, a variety of what would become known as Gnosticism. And Gnosticism had at its root this idea of a secret knowledge, a, a, a secret thing that only certain people had. And uh, the, the, the term sometimes used to refer to these people are the proto-Gnostics or the first Gnostics. And so in that case, it's possible that, the, the, that she was actually teaching people that they wanted to learn the deep things of Satan. And that that's how she would describe her teaching. It's the deep things of Satan because if you are so righteous in God, you can study the deep things of Satan and you're righteous and, and it's good. It's beneficial for you to study all those things. Either way, there's not a really strong case. Both of them are possibilities. But what is clear here is that Jezebel is teaching this false doctrine. She's, she's teaching it in a way that's winsome, that's seductive, that's being called teaching, that's being called prophecy, speaking on behalf of God, yet she's drawing people away from Christ. So the problem in Thyatira is their toleration of Jezebel's teaching. Jezebel's teaching is attractive and destructive, but it must be resisted. Why should it be resisted? Verse 21. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. And even here, there's some debate. Are we talking about spiritual immorality, the, the adultery of idolatry that's often used in the Old Testament? Are we talking about actual physical sexual immorality? Um, I, I, I think it's physical sexual immorality, but 
not a hill to die on. Uh, behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed. Those who commit adultery with her, I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works. I will strike her children dead. All the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart. I will give to each of you according to your works, but to the rest of you in Thyatira who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, do not let, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast to what you have until I come. As is typical in these letters, Jesus not only says what the problem is, he also says this is what's going to happen if you keep doing the problem, if you keep on doing what you were doing. There's a triple consequence here. First of all, what's going to happen to Jezebel? She's going to be thrown onto her sickbed. Right? She's going to be thrown onto her sickbed. The idea is she's, she's going to be struck down. Ultimately, she's going to die. And those who commit adultery with her, will th be thrown into great tribulation. So Jezebel leading people astray, she's going to face the sickbed. Those who are being led astray with her, they're also going to be punished. They're going to be thrown into great tribulation. Thirdly, those who are the children of this relationship, they are also going to face, um, face troubles because they will be struck dead. Jezebel and everyone associated with Jezebel will face judgment. Jesus takes the purity of his bride seriously. They are corrupting the church with their dressed up ungodliness. They are calling righteousness that which is unrighteous. This is a serious warning. If you are corrupting the church or allowing others to corrupt the church through immorality, and that refers to more than just uh, inappropriate sexual relations, if through your immorality or your false doctrine, your bad behavior, your unrighteousness, if you are going to do damage to Christ's church, the consequences are grave. If you are going to divide Christ's church, if you are going to turn Christ's church away from where it ought to be focused, this is a serious warning. Everyone who's a part of this is going to face consequences. Thrown onto sickbed, thrown into great tribulation, struck dead. There are grave consequences because Jesus takes the purity of his bride seriously. And you may be successful for a while, you may be an influential person for a while by dressing up ungodliness as so-called righteousness. You may be successful, but God's wrath is coming for those who hurt his church. God's wrath is not only coming for those who hurt his church. God's wrath is coming for those who allow them to hurt his church. God takes very seriously the purity and well-being of his bride. And if you are an agent of corruption in the church or allowing agents of corruption in the church, take very seriously this warning to the church at Thyatira. What's going to happen here? Christ will reveal himself. Look at verse 23. To the churches and all the churches, so the other churches, not just Thyatira, the judgment will be so great that it is a famous judgment. It is a well-known judgment. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. Jezebel can look like she's godly and righteous for a time. 
But eventually it's going to be revealed that God, that Jesus is the one with eyes of flaming fire who searches her works. It is eventually going to come out that Jesus looks into the mind and heart. He looks past anything that looks good to ordinary human beings. He is the one who does not look on the outward appearance, but looks on the heart. He is the one with the eyes of flaming fire. He is the, uh, the one with the feet of burnished bronze who will exercise wrath and judgment to defend his church. So watch out that you're on the right side of that judgment. Jesus takes his church very seriously. He is the one who searches. There's this ticking time bomb that Jezebel holds in her hand. She can go for a while. She can deceive the church for a while. She's apparently successful. She's allowed into the church. And she can stand there holding this ticking time bomb, facing the wrath of God. But every time she's teaching, that time bomb keeps ticking. Tick, tock, tick, tock. Jesus knows what's going on. Hurting his church. And trying to look godly while doing it may defend you from people in the church. It will not defend you from Christ. Not only is he the one who judges, he's also the one who rewards. Perhaps those who resist Jezebel would be looked down upon in their community and in their church. No doubt, if she's a much-loved character, as it seems like she might be, she, they would be hurt. Yet God is the one who judges Jesus is the one who rewards each of us according to our works. Jesus is just, and one day his justice will be revealed. At times it seems like ungodliness prospers, but that is only temporary. So what should we do? Revelation 2.20, uh, or rather 21. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Hopefully we're not in that first category. He says, I've given her a chance to repent, but she's not doing it. She keeps on doing her ungodly actions. There's this, there's this note of inevitability for judgment here. She's had the chance to repent. God is gracious. He is forgiving. Jesus gives himself for the church, but he will also protect the church. And so as that clock is ticking, she refuses to repent. And there's almost a sense here that he's moved on from calling her to repentance. And instead, he talks to her followers. I will throw her onto a sick bed, and those who commit adultery with her, I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works. The call is there to repent. If you are harming Christ's church through ungodliness, masquerading as godliness, the call is there to repent. The call is there to do what is right. There's still a chance for her followers. They're still being called to repent. In concrete terms, what is their repentance going to look like? It's the rejection of Jezebel's teaching a truthfulness about what she's teaching, a turn to follow Christ. But he goes on and gives us a few more specifics, a few more specifics um, in the following verses.
But to the rest of you in Thyatira who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned. So he's contrasting those who follow her with other people, those who do not hold and have not learned. Those who will not be a part of her false teaching, they will not allow themselves to be associated from it. Do not hold the teaching of Jezebel. Let it go. Get rid of it. And do not learn. Don't seek to understand her better. Don't put yourself in a place where you are influenced by the false teaching of someone like Jezebel. Do not hold and do not learn from her. However, it's not all negative. Because he goes on, and, and usually the Bible is not so much focused on what we do not do as it is on what we ought to do. So verse 25, what's the alternative to holding on to her things and learning from her? Only hold fast to what you have until I come. Only hold fast to what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him will I give authority over nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So not only does he say, do not hold on to the teaching of Jezebel, he says, hold on to something else. Hold fast on to what you have learned. Hold fast to the gospel of Christ. Well, what does the gospel do? The gospel reveals our sinfulness and gives us hope in Christ. This flies in the face of everything that Jezebel is doing. This false righteousness of Jezebel that turns people away from God is opposed to the true gospel, which says you are wicked and sinful, but Christ has come for you. Christ has died for you. Christ has made you whole. The real antidote to Jezebel's in the church is a church that knows the gospel well enough to avoid being deceived. A church that knows what true godliness looks like well enough to recognize wickedness dressed up in godly clothes. A church that knows their Bible, that knows the gospel, that knows the truth, that knows each other enough to see the truth of what's going on in other people's lives. That kind of person is able to hold fast to what we already have. How can we develop discernment to identify Jezebels in the church? We start with a biblical foundation. We start by knowing the truth of the gospel. We start by knowing what we ought to do, what we ought to believe. If these people had read about Israel and idolatry in the Old Testament, as Paul told to the Corinthians in his letter talking about this issue, they would understand the dangers of idolatry. But they didn't know that. They apparently did not study that. And so when they are confronted with idolatry, they, they go and they participate in it along with Jezebel. If they had a strong biblical foundation, that wouldn't have happened. If they had a strong biblical foundation in the sexual ethics of the Bible, when Jezebel comes in and says, here's this alternative sexual ethic and it's actually way better, they would say, no, that's not true. That's not right because they knew the Bible well enough. However, if you do not know, if you do not have a biblical foundation, then when you are confronted with someone like Jezebel, who's very competent at dressing up ungodliness as righteousness, you will be susceptible to that teaching. You must have a strong biblical foundation. You must also have a thoughtful outlook. When you're dealing with truth, you ought to be thoughtful about it. I think we need to be careful here because one of the sins that I think dresses up as, uh, as godliness is discernment. Well, discernment's not the sin, 
But it's, it's, it's divisiveness dressing up like discernment. It's, it's, it's fighting with people about minor issues and thinking that we're somehow exercising some form of biblical discernment. So I want to be careful on the topic of discernment because there's a right way and a wrong way to be discerning. So I would suggest that we ought to have a biblical foundation. That's going to protect us from a lot of poor discernment. But we also ought to have a thoughtful rather than antagonistic outlook. So we're looking, we're talking to other people, and we're thinking critically about what they're saying. We're thinking critically about what other people uh, are, are saying the Bible says. We're comparing it with Scripture. We're being like the Bereans in Acts 17. We're engaged, but we're not doing it in a way that we're antagonistic. I think some people expect that anytime someone who they haven't known for their entire life and whose last name isn't MacArthur says anything, that it's probably wrong. All right? Sometimes we get these like heroes that we think, well, if he says that it's right, and if anyone disagrees with them, they're wrong. We have to be very careful of that. We have to be discerning without being antagonistic, but still being thoughtful, still thinking, if I'm going to let something come in through my ears, I better be thinking about whether that's wise for me to listen to, but not in such a way that I'm expecting it to be unwise, that everyone has to like prove to me that they're, that they're worthy before I would possibly consider listening to a word that they say, but a discerning, thoughtful outlook. But then the final thing that we need in order to hold fast against this is an eternal viewpoint, a bold hope in eternity, because Look at the promise that Jesus gives to the church. The one who conquers. Okay, so implying here, the one who does this, the one who holds fast to what you have instead of following after Jezebel, the one who's not thrown on a sickbed with Jezebel, the one who's not thrown into the great tribulation, the one who's not struck dead. That person who conquers, who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron as when earthen pots are broken pieces, even as I myself has re have received authority from my Father. So where's the promise here? The one who doesn't do this, the one who resists Jezebel's in the church, the one who resists false teaching, the promise is end times promise. It's not a today promise. Right? We will resist and sometimes we'll get smacked in the face for resisting. We will, get, we will resist false teaching, and sometimes we will be ostracized for resisting false teaching. We are an independent Baptist church. That's kind of actually a new concept. Uh, independent Baptist churches became independent because they had to leave denominations that became corrupt. And, and, and then they're kind of scared of denominations because they saw them all go corrupt. And so that whole idea of being independent, that's because sometimes when you stand up for truth, you get smacked in the face. It just happens that way. So what's the hope? Why bother? I'm going to lose the battle anyway. Why bother? No one's going to listen to me anyway. Why bother? I'm just going to get thrown out on my ear. Because the one who conquers and who keeps my word until the end. You will never successfully be able to navigate a culture that's hostile to the gospel, false teaching in the church, anyone who fights against the gospel, if your hope is today. If your hope is today, the gospel is a very poor choice of life. Your lifestyle in the gospel is completely grounded on thinking about eternity rather than thinking about today. That's why Jesus says those who do these things on the earth, their reward is now. If we're ungodly now, that's our reward. We get to enjoy being ungodly. The message of the gospel is it's not actually good. It might feel good today, 
but long run, it is better to give up the pleasures of sin for a season like Moses and instead suffer tribulation with Christ. That, that's the better option. So if we're going to successfully fight against Jezebels in the church, if we're going to successfully resist those who corrupt the church with their seductive teaching, we have to have an eternal viewpoint. It says, until the end. The one who conquers. This is a, a potential, a conquer, bringing something to the finish. To him I will give authority, and he will rule with a rod of iron. It's all future tense here. It's going to be hard work to be one of, on the good side of the church at Thyatira. And what will happen? Those who overcome, those who conquer, those who continue to the end, they will have authority. Designated authority, I will give. So it's authority coming from outside. I will give authority over the nations, which Jesus has to give as king of all creation. And he will rule them with a rod of iron as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I my myself have received authority from my father. So those of us who are faithful will receive authority from God, from Jesus. We will have this strong authority described as a rod of iron. That's, a, that's a, a reference back to the Old Testament. Jesus ruling with a rod of iron. The Messiah ruling with a rod of iron. Authority, which shows the fragility of God's enemies when earthen pots are broken in pieces. So there's this, this idea that things that are standing against it are shattered. This authority, Jezebel thrives for a while, but ultimately her end is destruction and those who resist her will be rewarded. The time is coming, praise God, when there will be no more Jezebels. The time is coming, praise God, when we won't have to ask, is this person teaching true or is this person teaching false? But it's not here yet. It's a time that is coming and we look forward to it. Another promise given here, I will give him the morning star. Um, this is another one that's pretty difficult to interpret. Um, couple possibilities could be Venus as a symbol of the authority of the Roman government because that was a, one of their symbols of their authority. So Venus, possible. Uh, the star coming out of Jacob, so the Messiah and the prophecy of Balaam back in Numbers. We talked about that last week and the letter to the church at Pergamum who was following the false teaching of Balaam. Um, don't really know. <laughs> However, there's like seven or eight options. I'm not going to go into all of them. But I think clearly the intent there is this eschatological longing, this end times longing. There's going to come a time when this is over and there is reward for those who are faithful. We are able to hold fast to the gospel because we have hope for the future rather than our experiences in the present. The church at Thyatira needed to be reminded of this. The church at Thyatira needed to know that their experience in the present could be bad. It could be hard to resist Jezebel. It could be unpopular to resist her. However, in the end is our hope. So how do we apply this as a church? Know the truth well enough that you can recognize error. Know the truth well enough so that you can recognize those things that dress up in Sunday clothes but actually come in and destroy the church. False doctrines, false attitudes, false actions, immorality. Know the Bible well enough. Know how a Christian ought to live. 
know how a Christian ought to speak, know what a Christian ought to believe to such an extent that you can hold on to that. And when something doesn't line up with that, you can say, that's not right. I'm not going to get sucked into that. Realize that error can be seductive. No one ever really believes something they don't want to believe. Ultimately, it's our desires that are shaped. And we might make a different value decision. As a Christian, we ought to have such a desire to follow God that we're able to recognize the false desires that take us away from him, even though they may pay dividends in the short term, even though keeping our mouth shut might be much more comfortable and pleasant It may not be right. And finally, don't expect that uh, that eternal promises are going to be true today. This church has no promise that if they resist Jezebel, she's going to go away and they're going to have a nice, happy life there in Thyatira until they die as 80-year-old men and women who just have bunches of grandkids and had a wonderful time living. No promise of that. No promise that they resist Jezebel and Jezebel miraculously and gloriously is converted. No promise there. The only promise they have is that one day you're going to die and it's all going to be better. That's the hope of the gospel. It might not get better in this life. And that is okay because the next is so much greater that I'm okay suffering. I'm okay suffering for the truth of Christ's gospel.